They did. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Steven Spielberg's 1998 uh, war drama, uh, Saving Private Ryan. But before we talk about Saving Private Ryan, literally at all, what I'd like to chat with everyone about is a uh, is a not little scene like this. This was a a winner for the Oscar for best documentary short for 1944. But I want to talk about with the Marines at Tarawa, which is this 20 minute long short doc. It's in color um, and it's sort of you know a fairly a fairly straightforward. Um, Example of those World War II documentaries that I like a whole lot. I find them really interesting, uh, and and which were standard issue, honestly. Like as far as as far as the the documentary goes, it's pretty normal for stuff of that time. So there's a lot of the the propagandistic stuff that goes into it. A lot of we um, sort of putting the narrator of the piece with the with the people filming it, with the soldiers in it. Um, you know, talking primarily about American victories, um, except for Pearl Harbor, you really don't see a whole lot of, like, American failures, for lack of a better word, um, uh, documented like this. It is interesting, because as far as I know, um, it is either, and I, again, I want to be the, the podcast that has accurate facts, We'll just put it like this. This this movie was unprecedented in terms of the results of the violence it showed. So there were a number of documentaries which came out before this, um, which showed which showed explosions, which showed guns firing, um, which showed people arraying for battle. Um, but with the Marines at Tarawa is very interesting because towards the end of the documentary, it lingers on the dead bodies of American Marines. And this is a, this is a bloody battle out in the Pacific. Um, I mean, thousands of Marines were killed or wounded trying to take this, this little island. Um, and it is worth noting 
that they decided to show this stuff. And there are some there are some shots in there that are that are really pretty harrowing. Um, and the one that kind of gets me, it's at the it's at the beach, and they haven't cleaned up all the bodies yet. Um, and there is one there's one Marine's body that's just kind of floating and sort of being sucked in and out with the tide a little bit. And they linger on that for a while. And it's this, this incredibly moving shot. I mean, just a, a really, a really potent choice for the, for the documentary to make. Um, because I, I think it, when this movie comes out in 1944, it's not like people don't know, um, you know what the what the cost of the war is. It's it's not that people are unfamiliar um, with with the personal price that that parents, um, siblings, husband not husbands I guess at the time but wives, um, you know we're we're facing. And the the thing that I wanted to you know begin with was talking about this incredibly realistic. And again, World War II documentaries are are famous for faking stuff. Like, there's plenty of faked action, but that's not a fake corpse. Like, that's that's a real body, and there are other real bodies on the beach that they show. Um, I wanted to start with that because Saving Private Ryan is so famous for having a 24-minute sequence of essentially the landing at, at Normandy on Omaha Beach on, on June 6, 44. And it is famous... For what a lot of um, a lot of people have emphasized for the violence, uh, for the blood and guts, for the sense of realism, and and I think when the I've I've never actually read an article that says this, but you you frequently read about how you know the people who were there say there have been lots of representations of D-Day on film, and none of them mirror what it's like, quite like Saving Private Ryan does. This is this is one of the several issues I have with Saving Private Ryan, is that in that first, and I'm skipping the opening scene, as everyone else seems to do too, because if I talk about the opening scene, I'll start giggling. I'll talk about this later. But like, you think about the second scene, the the landing, the establishment of, of the, the beachhead, and, and eventually moving up the, the hill to take out the, the German position. It's, it's very much meant to be verisimilitudinous, and it's very much meant to, like, reflect what, what um, people there would have experienced. And it doesn't shy away from, you know, guys without arms anymore picking up what's left of their arm from the ground and trying to, like, put it back on. Uh, it doesn't shy away from, you know, people... People bleeding out on the beach, and it doesn't shy away from dead fish showing up on the beach with them. The problem I have with Saving Private Ryan is that there is not a single shot in that 24 minutes which is more harrowing or more meaningful than that 10-second shot from with the Marines at Tarawa, with that dead body floating in the surf. And you might say, well, one of these is a documentary from the time, and the other one is from what like 50 some years later uh, and it's a it's a fiction narrative film how can you possibly compare the two why are you comparing the two and the answer i give is that i think the point 
of that opening sequence, which no one will shut up about, and which I obviously have begun with as well, because no one can shut up about it, I think that the fakeness of it comes through more strongly, even when it's meant to be this realistic. For me, Saving Private Ryan is this movie which is the natural culmination of of Spielberg's career, I think. He has not made a movie as well-reviewed as this one in the more than 20 years since. Um, this, I mean, the 90s are, are a high-water mark for him with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. Um, you know, and, and I don't know that everyone would say that's his best decade, but it's the one where... Where that transition from Spielberg, the the entertainer, to Spielberg, the man who is very interested in our past and the key moments of our past, is, is, is being played out. And in this movie, I just think that there is this, this kind of, um, oh, how best to put it? It's this kind of, like, self-deception where Steven Spielberg is making this movie with this shaky camera and all of the, the hamburger they put onto an actor and, and tell him to yell for mother. Uh, and, you know, probably some extra squirts of ketchup on there, too, to make it extra, extra red. Um, they do all of this, and it's meant to be so realistic, and it gets people. And people from the time period, as well as people now, are really struck by how how bold and adventurous and and gripping and grim all of that is and and fair enough but the real thing is the real thing and the real thing is so much more powerful than the fake thing that it kind of makes your head spin that's my saving private ryan take to start with we'll get into the movie a little bit more I'm going to see if I can't make my cat leave, but I was going to give you an opportunity to to say what you wanted to about about the movie before we come back to it. Oh, want is a tricky concept. I don't know that I want to say anything about it, but I do have thoughts. Um, I'm cute. Tim is corralling his cat, so I will... Oh, no, he's back now, so I'll just present this question now since he can hear <laughs> Um, I'm curious if you think any of this has to do with the notion that there can't be a true anti-war film. That <laughs> Okay, go ahead. I'll come back to this. Okay, goody. Um, I think we've talked about this in a previous episode, but just the idea that like, even when you're trying to make it its most harrowing and grotesque, in a sense, in uh, just depicting war and depicting battle, you are glorifying it in a sort of pictorial sense that like you are making it right you have to because a movie like it looks like art um and then it, it like it has these clear stakes and right i asked that knowing that i don't think it's totally that at least because this is a very like as much as you can say this about anything having to do with normandy this is a positivist movie um like, it, it ends on, all right, we found the dude, and several other dudes might have died along the way, but we got the dude who I'm not sure why we're totally invested in. And yeah, that sounds really crass of me, but, like, I don't That's always kind of my question with the film. It's like, why, why do I care? Like, why do I care beyond a rah-rah, like, this is about saving one of America's boys' sense, which... 
I don't know. I'm me. I don't care. Like, that's not going to draw me in anyway. But, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I never get a good sense of stakes on this besides it's trying to depict um, how dangerous those lines could be. And, like you said, I'm like, I don't need Spielberg to do that for me. I don't want him to do that for me. I'd much rather have other sources. Um, where I can get that sense from. I'm I'm veering away from Saving Private Ryan, which is probably a subconscious move, so I don't have to talk about it like I said at the beginning of this. Um, I don't know. I think there's a degree to it. I think there's a degree of you can't make an anti-war film, especially when it's trying to do this, and I think there's a degree of it didn't even really want to be, um, and it's philosophically just a movie beyond the like technical stuff that I think is really more what most people talk about. Um, philosophically, there's just stuff that like, I can't do it. Um, and I don't know, man, war is not choreographed. So if you're going to give me a 24 minute, I mean, it's not a tracking shot, but like, if you give me basically a 24 minute tracking shot, like that's not war. (laughs) It's not that clean. It's not that, uh, it can't be done like that. Um, a singular image of a course, a corpse is much more real and harrowing than a staged production of war. Like, they're never going to be the same thing. So I guess that's my take on adjacent to Saving Private Ryan. All right, so the the quote, and I'm, I'm not going to try to quote this, but the paraphrase quote that there's no such thing as an anti-war film um, comes from Francois Truffaut. Who, who said it, um, and the idea, of course, is what you were talking about, this idea that there cannot be a movie which is really anti-war because by depicting the excitement inherent in war, um, you get people going and you get their interest in that way and, and their entertainment will outweigh their horror, their disgust, their morality, whatever that is. I was just going to add real quick, too, this kind of ties into what I was mildly ranting about like it inherently sets up the sides then too so right any way that you do become moralistic about it is in terms of who you want to win and lose and it just become like that's propaganda for war itself continued so i think that's part of it too and save it private ryan never tries to sidestep that at all the reason I, I said ha 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 when um when you mentioned the anti-war film thing is because Steven Spielberg has said that every war film is an anti-war film, which is exactly the kind of thing you would expect Steven Spielberg to say, not just not just because it's hilarious, but because it's emphatically not the not the case. Um, it it is. It how, is how have I missed that in my life? <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out here first, and then we'll we'll ignore it for a little bit. But last week, I I have spent. I've spent this week essentially either writing slash researching um, the Thin Red Line Saving Private Ryan discourse of 1998, which is fascinating, and I have a big old post at the blog about it, and I encourage you to go check that out. I did that so it would not take up the podcast, so I'm going to drop that for a second. Um, but I've also been watching a whole bunch of World War II movies, uh, which I do anyway, I think, but like I've sort of... I've sort of been more more um, intentional about about doing that, and it is interesting where they all sort of come down and and what their 
what their focus is and what they think about. And we'll, again, we'll talk about that as, as they come up. Um, but even among that group, even among that group, I don't get the sense that this is anti-war. Like, I, I get the sense of war is pretty terrible. War does things like it blows people to bits and it kills them and it takes sons away from their mothers. And it does, I mean, it does obviously terrible things. Um, but no one talks about those 24 minutes or half hour or whatever it is and, and, and says, that's so terrible. It's so gross. It's so horrible. I never want to see it again. And at the end of the movie, there's actually, I think, a much, a much stronger uh, uh, combat sequence of about equal length, um, maybe even a little bit longer, which I think has a lot of stuff in there. I think is pretty stupid, um, but which which I think is is better made. Um, quite frankly, I'm I'm much more impressed with the choreography of that one. Um, and the way that that's shot and the way that the events build on one another and, and how it proceeds. Um, I just think, I think the stuff at the end is really very well done. It's also incredibly exciting and there's, there's nothing about it that's anti-war. Like it's very much the same kind of energy as sports teams. And then it's got, um, it's got an ending which sort of takes the responsibility for all of it off the hook. I mean, one of the things I love about Spielberg movies is that so often things wouldn't have changed at all if the people involved didn't do anything. Like, in Jurassic Park, if no one had gone to the park, the result would be the same. If Indiana Jones had not chased the Lost Ark, the result would have been the same. And if they hadn't tried to save Private Ryan the result probably would have been about the same. Like, it's possible It's possible the Germans kill him before the, the reinforcements show up and the planes come along. But, like, I don't know. Maybe maybe things happen a little bit differently, and and it doesn't happen quite that way. But, like, regardless, that's this is a very Spielberg thing to do. You know, I think, it's, I think that last sequence in particular is really well done. The first one... Oh, man, I, I just, I just watch it and, and I wonder, have I been broken by the shaky cam? Like we lived through, we lived through the height of the shaking camera means realism thing, which I have hated from the start because that's not what a shaky cam does. All it does is disorient, which is not the same as realism at all. I defy someone to tell me that like, an Ozu movie where the camera does not move once in a two-hour picture. Like, I defy you to tell me that the, the family relationships of, like, late spring or something are, like, somehow unrealistic because the camera doesn't move enough. Like, there's, there's stuff that happens in the discourse that I don't love there. Um, but I, I just, I think that it's sort of self-defeating, and this is what, what I'm going to talk about a lot is the sort of self-defeating thing in this movie where you have the movie says one thing or the movie implies one thing and then it acts a different way. So like in the D-Day sequence, you understand it all through Tom Hanks. And because you understand it all through Tom Hanks, it makes sense. It's not that it doesn't like it no longer has the power to truly disorient you because there isn't a, a place to focus. And that's the thing that like just sort of defeats that entire sequence for me. Anyway, you had a thought. 
I do. You have me really impassioned about something now, but it kind of connects to what you just said about Hanks and that, like, you have something to see it through. I think, right, when you're talking about shaky cam, the problem is that people are arguing from two different places entirely. Like, there's our sense that right, that doesn't that doesn't say anything about realism. Um, the scene that you're seeing could be made realist whether the cam shakes or not it's the thing that you are seeing <clears throat> and our, our perspective is always inherently there but i think the other side of that is just it's real because they only imagine the person shooting the film like it's this fundamentally uh you know shooter voyeuristically focused perception of realism that the person with the perception is the thing that can be real or not rather than the thing that it is seeing, which is right. So, you know, a lot of the people watching the shaking cam saying it's realist aren't thinking about it along those lens, those lanes, I don't think, but I think that's fundamentally the problem there that it's a difference of, do you see the scene as real or are you making a claim about the, like the person doing the shooting being more realistic or not? So, I, not to get as far afield, but I think that's an interesting consideration as well, especially with war films um, and historical narrative. But what you just said about Hanks as Miller, I think, kind of ties into that pretty well. Is like, who are you seeing the narrative through? Because that matters, <laughs> and realism is always through a frame. All right, so I think I think this actually kind of leads me into where I want to go from here, which is to actually talk about the movie a little bit more um, in terms of like pros, cons, what works, what doesn't work. I do think the cinematography works more often than not. Like I think the I think the the stuff at the beginning is kind of obstreperous and and pointless in its own way, like sort of extra to make sure you get it, which again is the Spielberg experience. Um, but the the movie itself, I feel like, like you can, it's a clinic, right? Like I think one of the reviews, I think it's John Poderitz of all people, and I can't believe I'm quoting him again, but but he, he said in his review that Steven Spielberg was like born to be a film director. And there are, there are just these subtle camera movements and, and the, the way that he creates and crafts the scene through the, through the use of that camera, especially when you're not thinking about it, especially when you're not having your attention drawn to it, I find, I find really impressive in this movie. And, and there are a lot of things I don't like about the cinematography beyond the shaky cam. Like, Janusz Kaminski, once again, has to light up a window like it's a camera flashing every time. Like, the solid white light of a window, like... I don't understand what his fetish is for that, but he can't stop and Spielberg can't stop him and I hate it, but at least there aren't a lot of windows in this movie. For the most part, I think that's actually an incredibly effective um, effective job of shooting the movie and of, of where the camera is and what it moves to. Um, so for people who think that I don't have anything good to say about this movie, there's a thing. That's like, I genuinely do feel that. I don't think this is, is poorly made. Um, I do think the writing makes no sense. Uh, I think I've written before that this is like the worst screenplay to ever be nominated for an Academy Award. And while I'm not sure if I believe that anymore, I mean, Crash still exists. But the, the movie itself, I mean, everybody in the movie knows that the premise is a problem. 
it's so crazy to me that the movie understands how dumb the premise is. Everyone talks about how dumb the premise is, and yet it still wants us to care about the premise. This is the thing that just absolutely kills me. So, like, it's World War II. If you believe that it's worth it to defeat the Nazis, right? And and the movie, in fact, does not actually make a big deal about this. I don't think the movie goes out of its way to be patriotic. There's not a lot of, like, we're fighting for freedom, we're fighting for liberty. Again, I think, you know, to be commended here, um, the movie is primarily about something a little bit different. So it doesn't do a lot of that. You seem to think maybe it has more of that, but maybe it's the tacit thing. I think you're right to a point, but I also think a movie that ends with "You were worth it" and waves the American flag and is it willing? Like is it willing to do that with the Germans? That's Should my question. Be? Huh? Should it be? Well, if it's not like inherently patriotic in some way, like is it is it a movie about uh, kind of life in the military and how you will go to any lengths to save someone else serving with you? No, it should not be like absolving or like up, like holding up the Nazis. But would it do it with uh, I don't know the the Vietnamese in the Vietnam War? Right? Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, we'll 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 probably come back to this. I, I'm going to come back to to this later, I think. But like, because I do want to talk about the prologue epilogue, which I think is, good lord. Anyway, um, the 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 problem with the movie is that it's got this this premise. We have to bring home the fourth Ryan. His three brothers have all been killed in the space of about a week, and. We don't want his, like, essentially, like, a secretary figures out that these Ryan brothers are all dying off, and then it goes up to an officer, and then it goes up to another officer, and then it goes up to George Marshall. Um, and and he is, you know, re- reminded of a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote uh, to a mother in Boston and tried to, like, return her son, her last son, to, to, to his home, and... Everyone in the movie from that point on is like, this is a stupid thing to do. We're sending off these guys, multiple guys, guys, to to save one guy. And we don't know if he's alive or dead. He's he's a, a member of the 101st um, who went in before D-Day. I mean, there's a million different ways he could have died in the interim. People talk about how it's a misallocation of resources. People talk about how logically, mathematically, this doesn't make sense. And they say it over and over and over again. And by the time you actually reach the guy, then the movie has to double back and do a special speech about how if, um, you know, maybe saving him, they actually say the title, if maybe saving Private Ryan is the one good thing we can get out of this. But I don't know, man. Like, the movie kind of understands on its own that it's about, it's also about fighting Nazis, right? Again, another classic Spielberg thing. You fight the Nazis, kill the Nazis, that's good. Um, and and you sort of, you have to think about this in like terms of those 24 minutes of verisimilitude, of realism, of, of shock. And then immediately the movie's like, but by the way, also here's this very golden secretarial office and everything's a fairy tale where the chief of staff of the army 
decides that he's going to bring home this one guy just sort of on a whim, on a random whim, and everybody's going to go along with it and eventually decide that's good. But also, if you think that Nazism is so bad that you have to destroy it in this major war, then it should... And this this is a this is about to be an incredibly weird statement for me, so hold tight. But like, if you're if you're someone's mother who believes strongly enough that Nazism is an evil that could crush the world, and you and you are willing to send your four sons to the fight, then you should also be willing in some way to say that all four of them died fighting it. And like, I'm not saying you should be happy about that. Or you should, like, feel like, oh boy, I'm so excited to send my sons to die or something. Like, that's kind of a sick way of looking at it. But, like, the world is very realistic in this movie, except for the entire premise of it. And it just, it's, it's an illogic that just completely, completely craters this movie for me. Um, there's, I, I just, I just sort of don't understand why it's even the premise like, it's hard to look at a movie and say the entire point of this is stupid. But there's not another reason you could send a bunch of guys into the French countryside after D-Day? You can't think of one? Especially when there are so many World War II movies in the history of the genre, which figure out different fictional ways to put these men in danger like that? I just, I just don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. There's nothing about this that makes sense to me from a premise standpoint. And then they have to to go through the same cycle over and over again of like, okay, so is this is this a worthwhile mission or not? Everybody says no until all of a sudden they find Matt Damon. And then they're like, okay, this was a worthwhile mission. We did it. Good for us. So I want to do a couple of things here. First... I mean, what you just said is largely what I meant earlier when I was saying I don't know why I should care because the movie like, tells the you premise, not to. Well, the premise, like, even if it tried, the premise itself is just faulty, and like we severely overestimate what would actually happen in that situation. Like, I know we're here for a big rah rah moment, but uh, I, actually, I, maybe it's slightly clever about like this is entirely up to the whim of one person and like that is actually reflective of the military industrial complex in some way but I mean, the movie's not going to investigate that further it doesn't have to like it's I'm, I'm not expecting it to necessarily but like it's part of this further this thing is just like <laughs> scooby-doo levels silly um and like you can't make that a war movie <laughs> like that's the best you have the other thing i wanted to think about though what you said about all right so if the the thing about this movie is fighting nazis um i don't know i just think it is firmly a patriotic thing like then private ryan becomes just a, a cog really a symbol of some larger effort that like only the americans could really fight the nazis in this way and you were worth it because it shows our power um, or shows our ability. So I think either way, it's still it's fundamentally this patriotic thing that it wouldn't do this with a British soldier. Um, there, I'll use someone on the Allied forces to make it a little bit easier to go down. So I don't know. I get trapped in that. That's not exactly what we're talking about. But I, I agree, and that's my biggest issue with the movie. Is just like. <laughs> 
you know, you can talk about realistic action scenes, and that's one thing, but this just wouldn't happen unless it was entirely the whim of one guy who was like, yep, send them all to their death to get the one back, which it's never really clear, made clear, like, okay, well, why are the Ryan boys particularly important? And I know that sounds really mean, but, like... It's practical. Right, that's the sort of thing they think about when in war situations. Like, they have to. And it's never really clear, like, okay, well, why? What? What is... What is motivating this fully? All right. So the other, speaking of motivation, that was actually helpful. Um, the movie has has this ensemble cast. Um, it's got Tom Hanks and a bunch of guys who either weren't super well known then, or I mean, honestly, like they're all, they're all either character actors or guys who were were sort of known for like a, a thing here or there and, and nothing more. Um, I think my favorite thing in here is like that when they cast Matt Damon in this, Goodwill Hunting hadn't come out and like nobody expected that was going to be this giant hit and that he would win an Oscar for the screenplay. And then of course it's like Matt Damon at the end. And you're like, oh, it's him. It's this guy. It's it's Will Hunting. And like, of course, you know, they couldn't have planned for that. I don't I don't blame them or anything. Um, just the same way that like Vin Diesel is in this. And of course Vin Diesel was not, you know, like vin diesel at that point he was just a guy and and so there's there's some success here in um in the in the ensemble casting they get good actors like i there's there's not a guy in that group with the possible exception of like edward burns who is not you know the best actor in the world who i think is like so terrible do you have a favorite or a least favorite I was just gonna ask if I can remember some guys because I would remember. Like, some I would guys. love to see this cast do literally anything else together. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I recognize '98 as a different moment for them, but mm-hmm. like if you get all these dudes back together, whew, uh, I, I'm just gonna name a bunch of favorites. Tom Sizemore's hanging around no, he's here. Uh, he's good Giovanni Ribisi, who okay. I have. Uh, well, hang on, hang on. We'll get back to him. Okay. Just let me remember some dudes. Remember some guys. Uh, I'm just going to shout out Ted Danson. Um, <laughs> Nathan Fillion is here. Brian Cranston in like, what, this would be the <laughs> Malcolm in the Middle time. Maybe it's before that even. Um, and my favorite, like just in general, not necessarily in the movie, but Paul Giamatti, who I have a deep fondness for at all times. But you wanted to talk about Rubisi, who I also greatly enjoy. So go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's Beck's brother-in-law for a while. Ah, yeah, yeah connections. So I they get good actors for this. Like I, I I really don't have any complaints on the actor front. Where I where I struggle with this movie is with uh, with the characterization, which is the word insidious comes to mind, and of course it's not insidious. It's just normal bad. But like the idea that you take a stereotype. And you give people just enough lines of like commode story style uh, like reminiscence, and that creates a character. I, d- I just don't think it works. Like these guys aren't characters; they're just stereotypes. And as they die off, I'm I'm sort of upset because you know it's it's a shame to watch people die, but it's not because it's not because they're people. It's not because they're people on the other side of this. They're just stereotypes. 
the Italian, the guy from Brooklyn, the Jew, the Southerner. Like, it's it's just dudes who are playing types and not actually, you know, individuals um, who, who, like, have any kind of characterization. And the movie could go in one direction or another here. Uh, it could choose to give us real people, or it could choose to make these guys into cannon fodder. But it, it goes in the middle, and, and that middle road is not successful, I don't think. And it's a problem because you're really supposed to care about these guys by the end of it. And, you know, aside from the fact that I've seen them, <laughs> that they... And that, you know, you, you feel for anyone who dies on screen, especially soldiers like that. Like, it's, 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 a uh, it's an issue with the, with the writing. Like, I, I just don't think it's got any successful writing to speak of. Um, for example, how dumb is it that Tom Hanks won't tell anyone that he's a teacher in Pennsylvania? Like, what a non, what a non-story that is. Like, they sort of build that up and, and, like, there's no possible reason why he shouldn't tell people, yeah, I teach high school English in Pennsylvania. Like, oh, no one does. Like, what are we talking about? It makes no sense. And then everybody, and then later everybody's fighting. And then he's like, I'm a high school teacher in Pennsylvania. And everybody's like, oh my God, let's stop fighting. Well, it's very rare that we had an English teacher in Pennsylvania. They, they were very hard to come by. I don't know if you realize that, Tim. I know you lived next door, but totally different world inside of it. I was about to say, flush with English teachers in New Jersey. You can't get rid of them. Um, so I guess they're all on the other side of the river. Um, yeah, it just drives me nuts. So let's, let's talk about the, the true failure of this movie, the prologue epilogue. Boy, howdy. The prologue epilogue. Do you... I'm I'm so excited that we've gone off about so much different stuff, and now we get to the punchline. <laughs> Let's talk about the true failure. <laughs> it's that it didn't have an English teacher uh, like, advising on the script. What an unbelievable first five minutes, last five minutes of this movie. Starting and ending with this sort of faded out American flag with sunlight through it, gently rippling in the breeze. Oh boy. And I, I don't even know, man. Like, I don't know. It's it's just, it's the worst. It's the worst. And then, as I was reading through stuff, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but like, as I was reading through stuff for for the, the post I did, I found multiple Saving Private Ryan critiques, which talk about like how well endowed the the ladies behind old Ryan are like his daughters have like big old racks and apparently that's what some people were noticing during that like initial scene and then once you see it you can't unsee it and then it makes the the whole thing absolutely hysterical because there's no reason for that to be the case, but apparently that's what some people come away with in the first five minutes. And like, I was dying watching the first five minutes of this, which I didn't expect to do, but it's, it's just like, you really can't unsee it. And then at the end of it, did I earn it? <sighs> Big old fart noise for that one. Like, first of all, what a douchey thing to say to someone as you're dying. 
Like, come on. That's not nice. That's not fair. Like, it's not his fault that his three brothers died. Second of all, the movie doesn't care if he earned it or not. The movie is completely disinterested, and the reason I know that is because the only time we see anything in his life is when he is a tertiary character defending a bridge, or when he's old and spends a lot of time falling down in front of crosses. So, like, no, the movie doesn't care that much if he earned it. It's just a thing to say. Drives me crazy. Okay, so... There's more about his daughters with big old racks, which... I've made the mistake of looking at the still of this scene now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't... I got nothing. This is the... Uh, America's finest boys at work. <laughs> oh, it's it's truly patriotic to, to just have... To, to have that kind of a, yeah, we can, we can salute and, and walk away, I think is the best thing to do. So, theme for this week. I understand this is a long time in. We're getting away from this. But the idea of... Wait, wait, there's an episode this week? I thought it was just this. <laughs> Could you... I mean, as, as much as I would have been tempted to just go full bore into let's destroy a 90s Tom Hanks movie... I think we kind of missed that opportunity with Forrest Gump, a movie which is worse than this. Um, Saving Private Ryan is... The, the theme this week um, is... I want to make sure I'm saying this properly. is World War II from a distance. And obviously, movies from 98, war ended in 45. It's from a distance. And I sort of went around... A long time with this theme um, being a little bit different. I was just sort of thinking about it in terms of of soldiers from World War II in action, and I had different movies in mind um, when I was doing that. And I decided that I kind of wanted the kind of wanted to have a little bit more distance because the movie itself is about the distance in, in a certain way. It's about you know. When we look at it from the vantage point of 1998, what we're supposed to be impressed with or think about here is to, to consider the, the sort of band of brothers aspect, the duty that we have that's not necessarily patriotic or necessarily about the mission, but it's about serving with other people and about the connection you have with other people in your unit, in your group, and how you're sort of like bonded together through the shared experience. And that comes through, I think, pretty strongly in Saving Private Ryan. It's, in, in a lot of ways, that's the point. Um, even if I don't think the movie does a good job with it, that's, like, what it's about. So, uh, very quickly, uh, we have two movies here which I think are significantly better than Saving Private Ryan, which I think do a much more interesting job uh, looking at, at this idea of World War II from a distance, seeing it... Um, you know, with the with the potentially clearer eyesight of, you know, not hindsight necessarily, but like with with context. You know, you can you can see World War Two not in like nineteen forty four with some of my favorite World War Two movies, or nineteen forty nine uh, with Battleground, but you know, from the eighties, from the nineties, and you can see how the world has changed and knowing what we do about the world, how does that alter the way we look at the war? So the two movies I've got in mind are The Big Red One uh, by Samuel Fuller, which is based in some ways on on his own war experience, and 
the Thin Red Line. Uh, as we continue our Terrence Malickathon, we took a, a week off last week, uh, but he's back. He's he's uh, back in business, and he is adapting the James Jones novel uh, of the same name. We're going to start with Big Red One. Um, this one is is kind of uh, maybe a little underseen. Um, Fuller is not. I think I've explained this to someone recently, actually. Like, you have your name brand auteurs, and, like, Fuller is a name brand auteur, but he's also not on lists, like the AFI list, and he wasn't getting nominated for Oscars. So, like, if your intro to, to like, you know, movie history is through those those kind of avenues, as it was for me, uh, then it takes you a little while to get to the guy. Um, and Fuller, of course, is this incredibly important American director... Uh, who is making this really um, countercultural, interesting set of movies in the 50s, um, like The Steel Helmet, which is kind of an anti-war film about the Korean War, which is unusual on its own, on its own merits. Um, or a movie like Shock Corridor, which is about a journalist who decides to get himself into a mental hospital to, to, find, um, to find a criminal, and that's, that's pretty exciting and deeply bizarre. Um, but the big red one comes from later in his career. It's a movie that he kind of had to scrimp and save to make, uh, and I think they shot it primarily in Israel, so which is not where most of these are shot. Um, and the movie itself was put together, um, you know, as a as a like your regular two hour movie in the first cut, and then in the oh gosh, I'm not going to get the year right for this at all. Um, but, like, some years later, um, I think, in fact, after Fuller's death, I think the restoration is from the mid-2000s, um, and Fuller died in the 90s. But the movie was restored and added, like, 45 minutes or so to that. So instead of being this fairly tight two-hour movie, it's now this more sprawling, uh, but still pretty efficient 160-minute movie. Uh, the movie itself is centered on a sergeant, uh, a sergeant in in the 1st Infantry Division. That's the Big Red One. It's like a red one on a patch. That's why Big Red One, very clever. When I first heard about this, I thought it like referred to the war or something, like the war itself was the Big Red One because of all the blood, but no, that's that's not what it is. It's not, it's not quite that poetic. Um... It's centered on Lee Marvin's character, uh, this sergeant, who ended the last war kind of badly. He murders, and I say murder here on purpose, um, he, he murders a German who's trying to surrender, not realizing that the war is over. Um, so he's a little bit haunted by that. And of course, that's going to be a problem in World War II as well, because here we are fighting the same people. He is in charge of this one, like, rifle squad. And because it's World War II, people keep dying, and um, people come in and out. But there are these four guys who are with him the whole time. You have Zab, uh, being played by Robert Carradine, uh, who always has a cigar in his mouth, who's sort of an aspiring author. He's kind of the fuller stand-in in this movie. Um, there's Private Vinci, uh, played by Bobby DeChico. There's Private Johnson, played by Kelly Ward. And in between playing Luke Skywalker is Mark Hamill, who's playing Private Griff, uh, who's probably the best shot and the most 
the most um, unsettled of the guys. Not like it comes comes on very strongly through most of the movie, but he's he's got more sensitivity than the other three do. And the four of them make it through the whole war. The four of them are there in 1942 uh, when they're in North Africa together, and they are there at the end when they're in Germany. And the 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 chimes go at midnight, and the war and the war ends. What the movie recognizes is the churn of everybody coming in and out. Um, they come into the unit, and then they go out of the unit when they die, or when they are wounded badly enough to not come back. And it gets to a point that by the time they're fighting in Sicily in 1943 that they don't even bother to learn the new guys' names anymore. They're just faces, because they they have this sort of sense that the four of them plus their sergeant are going to live, and that everyone else is just quote-unquote a, a replacement. Everybody else is just um, meat for the grinder. And it's arrogant, and it's unsettling, and they're right. They're right every time. Um that there's someone else who comes along, and, and sometimes those guys will be kind of offended. You know, like, sometimes those guys will will feel pretty bad about, you know, like, hey, man, we've been serving in this unit for seven months. Why don't you know who I am? And then they'll, like, say his name wrong and be like, whatever, man, you're not going to make it through the next battle anyway, and lo and behold, he doesn't. Um, for, for Saving Private Ryan, World War II is about duty to the unit, the mission, for Sam Fuller's Big Red One, World War II is about the survivors and the dead. And it's not about duty, it's just about meat. And about whether or not you're going to be in the grinder or not. Um, and some people get to live, and some people get to die. And at the very end of the movie, there's like this one Nazi dude who's sort of been in the same theaters of operations as them and kind of gotten close to, to fighting them on a few fronts and has like once or twice... And at the end of at the end of the of the movie, Lee Marvin's character goes and stabs him, you know, after after the war has, you know, ended. And he's like, oh, golly, not again. And he's like, I'm going to make sure this one survives. And there's this voiceover because Zab's been doing the voiceover the whole time. And he says something along the lines of, you know. It's weird to say this, but we have more in common with that Nazi than we do with the guys in our unit who died. Because we survived. All of us. The Nazi, too, apparently. Um, this guy who is is really, like, a sicko. Like, a, a truly sick guy. Like, murders people who say bad things about Hitler. Um, private citizens, other soldiers, whatever. Like, just genuinely a real psycho. He says, we've got more in common with this guy than we did with the... Uh, with the guy who, like, blew his genitals off tripping on a mine, or the guys who died on, on D-Day, um, the guys who were killed in Normandy, because we're alive and those guys aren't. And, and the movie pairs it down to this in a way that I find incredibly striking and really appealing in this gruff, ugly sort of way. Um... Occasionally it gets to a point where you you wonder a little bit about whether the guys are going to make it. Like there's their their D-Day scene is not at all like Spielberg's. And I guess now is kind of the time for this digression. Um 
but you watch enough of these World War II movies and you get a bunch of D-Day scenes. Um, so I watched The Longest Day for this. I thought about maybe putting The Longest Day in here. And, like, that one is so purely about the operation. It's so far away from the action so often. There's these giant crane pans from left to right. and You get to see the whole field. And it's not personal at all. And then they're saving Private Ryan, which, like, shows you just enough of everything to make you feel like you know the whole state of play. And then you have this movie where you only get what these five guys we've been following can see. And there is a sequence where they're, like, putting together um, these tubes, which are packing TNT in them to blow up, um, to blow up like, a, a wall, like a, a fortification. And what happens is, is the sergeant calls out a number, and the guy who's assigned that number gets up, he takes his piece as far as he can before he gets killed. And they go through, and you watch them go down. One goes up, doesn't make it that far, killed. Two, dead already. Three, they send three up. You watch him, you watch four, you watch five, you watch six, seven is dead, and then he sends up eight. Like, you literally are sitting there watching these guys go further as the, the four guys who know they're going to make it just sort of look on, and they're like, oh, well, like, good for you, you know, you do you, man, but they're me. Um... And then eventually Mark Hamill's number gets called. Griff's numbers gets called. And he, like, can't believe it. <laughs> he sort of almost does a double take at it. He's like, hey, that's me. And and eventually they think that he's gotten killed, but he, like, manages to, to put it together and blow up the, the fortification. Um, but it is it is just so interesting to watch this movie that looks at World War II even less than than Saving Private Ryan. And, like... I don't, like, Fuller is not pro-Nazi. Like, Fuller's a, a, you know, for all of the, the macho elements, um, is is sort of a left-leaning guy, is not pro-Nazi, is not, you know, interested in, in that kind of stuff. But th this movie's got nothing about, like, what are we fighting for? What are What is the purpose of this? Um... What's the propaganda we're spilling at home? There is zero of that in this movie. It is just about objectives and dead, dead soldiers from the army and and who li and who gets to live and who gets to die. Um, there's a little bit more that I want to talk about with this movie about children, um, but I figure this may not be one that you've seen. It is not, but anytime you mention children and more, I'm automatically shot back into Slaughterhouse Five. So I'm interested in this uh, branch of analysis as well. I'm. This is gonna sound weird. It's. Uh, oh, I don't want to use that adjective. It's a good counter to Saving Private Ryan, as we discuss war films, in its bleakness. Like, the fact that it isn't really taking a sort of patriotic or moralistic stance. Um, right, I don't want to say that's refreshing or a good thing necessarily, but, you know, if we're going to talk about realism, war is hell, no matter what side you're on or who you are, and chances are most of you are going to die. So, I, like, that as the takeaway from a distance rather than the clean narrative of uh, right in this case what Americans do really um, I'm intrigued by that like as the total opposite of 
virtually total opposite of what Saving Private Ryan is doing, but talk to me about children. So there are there are several children in this movie. Um, there are four who stand out. Um, one of them is a little girl who is putting flowers in Lee Marvin's helmet, and like, you know, for, for Lee Marvin, there's always that little bit of like, unexpected knock roughness, like this kind of kindliness that you get from the guy occasionally. Um, what a wonderful actor. Anyway, so he's got these these flowers in his helmet and that Nazi is like taking aim. He's like, this idiot's got flowers in his helmet. He's like, sh- uh, gonna shoot at him. Gets the little girl instead. Um, and that's like, that's one of them. Another one is a little boy who helps them find uh, a tank that's that's posted up and like firing these incredibly devastating shots at the at the American lines and they they get the little boy to take them there he's carrying not he he's got a little like donkey with this cart behind him and the cart has his decomposing mom in it and he's like I will help you find this gun but you need to get me a good coffin for my mother and while there is a celebration going on after the the tank is taken out and the personnel are killed and these Sicilian women have like cooked this like Sicilian meal for the guys, there's this one like incredibly brutal shot where you see the little boy's face and like he's not benefiting from this. His dad's already dead, his mom is dead, his mom is rotting behind the donkey, and like nothing good has happened for him. And eventually he like gets the word from from Lee Marvin's character through their, their Italian guy, um, that he is going to, you know, get, like, a, a coffin with six handles, not just five, and, like, you know, everything else. And he sort of brightens up at that, but, like, you get that moment, just that one little insert is, is heart-wrenching. Um, there is a baby who they deliver in a tank, which is... The funniest thing in the movie by a long shot, and that may sound weird, but there's this, I mean, it's it's almost, it's almost Marx Brothers-esque. Like, this bizarre comedy of these five guys in a tank with this woman giving birth, and they're trying to, like, encourage her, and they're like, what's the French word for push? And, and Lee Marvin's like, I think it's poussé. And the one guy they've got doing it, Johnson, who's, like, the best trained, is like, pussy. Pussy, and he's like, "That's not what it is, you idiot. It's not pussy. It's pussy." <laughs> he's like, "Pussy," <laughs> and it's like this weird, very weird, very very funny scene. But they get the baby, and like, he is he is delivering this baby. He's like, "I need gloves," and like, we don't have gloves. And he's like, "Well, we have condoms." So he's got these like condoms on his hand, and he is like trying to convince this French woman to help push more. But like, there's triumph there. And it's this incredibly funny, incredibly weird scene. So that's the third kid. And then the fourth kid, they um, they wind up at a concentration camp. And this is like one of the things that's actually closest to, um, to Fuller's experience. Because when he was in World War II, he was there at the liberation of a camp in, in then Czechoslovakia. Um, and there's a little boy that, that the Marvin character kind of like, you know, finds essentially. Um tries to get him to eat, tries to get him to, like, hear, like, a music box playing and, and, and is enjoying that. And the two of them are kind of bonding a little bit, and then the little boy just, like, dies. Like, there's nothing else he's got in him. Like, he's just he's just finished. And it seemed almost like he was waiting for safety to do it in. And 
you see you see Marvin like carrying around the kid on his shoulders, um, who is who is dead, and you hear Zab's voice say he carried the kid around for half an hour before he put him down, and that's like that's it, and you can you can tell like the meat aspect is not just about the soldiers, like there's a certain level of their their survivors, like the little boy in Italy, like the baby who is delivered in a tank. Um, and there are the ones who die. And there is a, an incredible amount of sympathy for the ones who who don't make it in a way that, I mean, like, the movie has, like, a very offhand, so it goes, you know, like, this is Slaughterhouse-Five. Like, there's a difference between the offhand, so it goes, and the, the serious, so it goes, and, like, the movie balances the two of them really well. Um with the kids in it and with the soldiers who, you know, kind of have to expect to go. Um, even if, even if nobody wants to, and even if the, if they are not one of the, the five elects, um, they will always believe that they won't. So that's the big red one. Um, any, anything else to, to say about it? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> yeah. I think what I said earlier is all I really have. I mean, the, the scenes with kids are hilarious and heart wrenching all at once, and um, yeah, those. I mean, right, this not to keep dragging Vonnegut into this, but right, that's what he picks up on too. That like, when you see what it does to the kids, that's uh, like it's terrible no matter what. But like, that's when it just right, that's the invocation of that novel. Don't do that to the kids. Um, and this movie grappling with that so explicitly and so many on so many occasions is bold and I think leads to it adds in an extra heft even after what was a fairly hefty sounding thing to begin with. All right, our other other choice is the thin red line, which boy, I cannot I really cannot wait to talk about this one. Uh, I have been looking forward to talking about it for a while. Um, if there is a Mount Rushmore of war movies, this is probably my only American one on it. Um, I have, I think I probably need to put two Soviet movies on it. Like, the Soviets do a better job of talking about what it does to kids. Um, that's Ivan's Childhood. That's Come and See. And then if you count Grand Illusion as a war film, which I think you should, not just a prison film, but a war film, I think you have to put it in there. That's on there for me, and then the thin red line is my is my last one, and it's the only one by by an American, and like we said before, it's by a recent friend of the podcast, Terry Malick. Is this the is this the last one we have for? No, we still have the New World in a couple weeks. Never mind. No, no, we they were all in order, as you remember. <laughs> so we got another one in there. I just I just could not remember how close it was, but yes, it's fairly close. Um. But Thin Red Line is the the movie, the the first movie he made in 20 years. So this one is 20 years past Days of Heaven. Um, It is another movie with the biggest cast in the world, and it actually got smaller because of how much got cut from it. So this is a movie where the main characters are played, frankly, probably most by like Jim Caviezel, Ben Chaplin, and like Nick Nolte. But then it's also got Sean Penn in a major role. Um, so he's like, he's super important to the story. Uh, Elias Codius, who is just this absolutely tremendous character actor, plays a major character. Um, 
But then you just, you know, just to scatter them in, you've got Adrian Brody and George Clooney and Woody Harrelson and, and John C. Riley and John Savage and John Travolta and Tim Blake Nelson and Jared Leto. You know, like everyone's in this movie. And then they cut Mickey Rourke. I think they cut Mickey Rourke, Lucas Haas, and Bill Pullman. I think the three of them were all supposed to be in it at some point or another and just didn't ever make it into the film. It's that kind of movie. Okay, one, Jesus. Two, how dare you prevent a Mickey Rourke, Nick Nolte scene happening together? (laughs) I don't even know if they were projected to be in the same scene, but... Who knows? Did I say John Cusack? John Cusack's in this for a while. Like, this... (laughs) It's it's that kind of movie. Everyone in the world is in it. Um, Even though a lot of them really don't mean much more than, like, cameos. Like, George Clooney is in this... uh, Like, his role is, I think, was supposed to be bigger... He's in this for a minute. Like, I think it's literally about a minute. Um, John Travolta is not in this very long. Same, like, But like his character means a little more. In any event, it's a, it's a big cast. It sort of defies, um, defies a focus. Um, there are enough people to look at, talk about, focus on that it's not necessarily about any one of them. And that's, that's the point of the movie. So if... Just to recap a little bit, if Saving Private Ryan is this movie about duty to the unit, and that's what World War II basically comes down to, is duty to the men in your unit, and the big red one is about the difference between being dead and being alive, this movie, and I wrote this down, and we're going to see how it sounds, but World War II is about the ineffable cycle of violence, which is inescapable in nature. So the movie... Be, I mean, this is the most Malick possible interpretation of the event, um, which ticks some people off. I, I, I just kind of heard that and went, yeah, <laughs> and? So let's get to the and. Let's get to the end. So this is, this is a movie which the first shot, good lord, what a first shot. It's this enormous saltwater crocodile just sort of pulling itself into the water, just sliding down a little mud bank into this algal pond and like poking its head out for a second. And then it like, you know, disappears. Is it as good as private Ryan's bosomed daughters? Well, there are different kinds of absolute units. I think we'll just put it that way. So, (laughs) Oh boy. I think that's, I don't think I'm allowed to, to talk until Matt has regained his composure. That's the whole blurb for this episode now. <laughs> I'm not even writing anything else. <laughs> anyway, so the crocodile sort of slides into the water here. And it is so different than an American flag waving. Saving Private Ryan is your, is your like, your your standard style of American war movie. And there are some critics, this is a Jonathan Rosenbaum thought, who's like, you know, it, watching this movie, it's kind of not like watching World War II or watching a World War II movie. It's like watching Steven Spielberg's interpretation of World War II movies. And like starting with the American flag and ending with the American flag, it's the, the most Spielberg way to do that. And then this movie starts with a crocodile. And then there's this voiceover. It's Jim Caviezel talking about, or sort of wondering. The narration in this, the voiceovers in this are weird. Um, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But like, he's sort of wondering, 
why is why is nature in conflict with itself? And later on, he'll ask, are we all part of a single soul that has many faces? Um, is it is it natural for us to, to have this kind of conflict between ourselves? Am I going to get to talk about Vonnegut and Cloud Atlas in the same episode? Because... Interesting point of comparison. The person who shot this movie is John Toll, gorgeous cinematography, uh, co-shot Cloud Atlas. True, true facts. Um, so that's like, that's where this movie is coming from. And the movie begins with uh, Jim Caviezel's character, Private Wit, um, hanging out with the Melanesians. He's on the Solomon Islands, uh, and he's just sort of kicking it there with, uh, with his unit, or without his unit. Um, hanging out with the kids, and it's this... I, I tried to time this out, because I was thinking about this... Because it is a replacement movie. I was thinking about the ha- first half hour of, of Private Ryan, and you can cut it into two things. It's it's that prologue which we're not talking about anymore, and it's the, the D-Day sequence. In this movie, the first half hour is like... Private Wit with the Melanesians return or is caught... Um, Sean Penn gives him a dressing down about how there's no such thing as an individual because an individual is always going to be defeated. You're only as strong as the people you're with. Um, and then it goes to John Travolta, like challenging Nick Nolte about why he doesn't have, um, you know, why he doesn't have like a higher rank essentially, even though he's an army lifer, he's only a colonel. Um, that like that's the first half hour and it's so much slower and the, and the battle sequences in this movie are much longer um i would say maybe between a third and a half of this movie are are these men trying to take a single hill a single ridge uh which is being occupied by japanese soldiers like that first hour roughly speaking is about building up knowing some characters getting some sense of like what people are doing um, deployments. Second hour, fighting for the hill. Third hour, who knows, man, it's a Malik movie. Um, but that's like, that's essentially how it breaks down. And the movie is sort of tied together with this very loose questioning voiceover narration. Um, and it's, it's so often just like, asking questions and and like simple questions like how do we lose that good that was given us um why should i be afraid to die love where does it come from who lit this flame in us and like it sounds like a mixture of like horsey books and freshman philosophy stuff except there are two things about it that that make me sort of pause and one of it is, one thing is something that annoyed a number of critics, which is like, it doesn't sound like the characters, it sounds like the director. And for me, the comparison is to Faulkner. And I wrote about this before, but this is kind of what stands out to me, is like, when you read As I Lay Dying, when you read, when you read like, Darl or Jewel, does that, does that sound like an uneducated Mississippian, or does that sound like William Faulkner? And if, if that's something you're okay with in, in a novel like that, then I think it's okay to feel all right about it in the movie. Especially because the movie is using its voiceover entirely as a counterweight for images. And those images are of this incredibly violent battle. Um, 
there's lots of blood and guts in this. This is not nearly as gory, but there are these enormous explosions going on. You can see these this green, incredibly beautiful place turning brown in front of your eyes. Um, you see these shots where the landscape has been totally destroyed. It's like all the grass that was there is gone. Um, but it, then it's also punctuated by inserts of wildlife. Like there's a tawny frogmouth who gives someone a look. There are these lovebirds poking around. Um, there are There's that crocodile. And then there are all these shots of trees. Like the light sort of like coming in from trees. Um, you know, sort of as if there's something above that we have to pay attention to. That's like, for me, this is a much, a much more interesting way to look at the, at the war. And it's not a, a question of like good or evil. It's a question of why are there sides to this at all? And why can't we escape it? And what these characters are going through, and this is kind of my second thing, the reason why the narration doesn't bother me so much is even if it doesn't sound like, like, you know, dog faces, it sounds, it, it sounds philosophical. These are not questions that normal people can't ask. Like, why, like, why are we fighting this war anyway is a reasonable question. And, and I think it's important that this is set in the Pacific theater where the Sean Penn character says the whole thing's about property. And, like, say what you will about about fighting Nazis, but, like, and, and say what you will about the, the extremes and the evils of Japanese society in the 30s and 40s. Like, crazy, terrible stuff was being perpetuated. I'm not trying to say that Japan in the 30s and 40s, let alone what they did in China or in Southeast Asia, was somehow good, because that there's some flat-out evil that happened. But the war itself in the Pacific is about property. It's about who is going to be the great imperial power in the Pacific. Is it going to be the United States? Is it going to be Japan? And that's what's going on at the Battle of Guadalcanal, which is what these guys are fighting. It is a question of, like, who is going to triumph here? Is it going to be America or is it going to be Japan? Who is going to get the rubber? Who is going to get the oil? Who is going to be able to control these incredibly rich natural resources which are out here on the Solomons, or out here in, dare I say, Vietnam. You know, like, that's kind of, that's what the war is thinking about, or not the war, that's what the people are thinking about in some cases. And in other cases, they're just wondering, like, why do I have to be torn away from my wife to do this? This woman I love and I can't bear to be away from, why am I not with her now? Can my love persevere? Can I go home to her um, and be the man that I want to be with her? Are we all part of the same soul? Am I killing people who are me? Now, do it like I love my unit. I love the people I'm with. This is Wit again. Um, he's he's very active about trying to take care of as many people as he can. He volunteers for dangerous missions because he doesn't want other people to get hurt or because he wants to be there when something bad happens. But at the same time, he is very clear. He says, wars don't ennoble men, turns them into dogs, poisons the soul. It's the kind of thing that, like, he recognizes by doing the right thing, trying to protect these people I care about, I am doing something terrible to people who might be a different face on me. And that's sort of where the movie is going. It's it's definitely a, a lot more ethereal uh, than either one of these other two. But in that way, I feel like it functions as a very good counterpoint to, 
to not just saving Private Ryan, but to Big Red 1 as well. I take it this is also not one you have seen. No, it's... I think I've invoked this list enough times that people should yell at me, well, why aren't you, like, doing anything about it? But it's definitely high on the, like, I need to watch that, and I just have not sat down to watch it. And I don't have a good reason for that. Um, It has sounded fascinating for a long time. Um, And your account of it has me totally hooked. I'm interested in both of these, honestly. Like, they both sound really interesting. And I don't tend to like war movies at all. That's maybe why I haven't watched it. I just avoid them as kind of a general rule at this point. Um, But maybe two like these would actually, like, I don't know, open me back up a little bit. Um, It sounds like they're at least more interesting for me to engage with. Um, And more along the lines of what I just think the whole time I'm watching a war film, which is about everything behind it and, like, None of this is good. These are just kids trying to survive, and that's all they should be doing. Like, there, there's no meaning to it. The, the best you can get to is it's about survival of you, or it's well, who are you like? Who are you trying to acquire property for? Like, that's what you're fighting for. Um, so, yeah, I, they, they both sound super engaging to me so maybe these will be my foray back into some more stuff um but yeah i i haven't seen either so that was uh it was it was cool to be a blank slate on this one um because i have huffy thoughts about saving private ryan but just kind of not having preconceived notions of what other world war ii films are doing i think that was helpful in a way this one does have the uh the seal of approval from my wife who as we were watching or as we as we finished watching this one she was like so this one's not on the list but saving private ryan is because we watched that one together a couple years back and she and she was like i well i like this one because it was different than other war movies it wasn't just fight 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 which was her phrasing. I'm like, that's exactly what Saving Private Ryan is. It's just fight, fight, fight. And like, I do want to say about this movie, there are two more things that I had in mind about this, and I'm going to write them down. But there are two things that I sort of um, was was thinking about here before we before we finish this off. Um, but this well, is... Just real quick, it's a movie that's aware of like how long and arduous it is to scale a hill, <laughs> especially in World War II. Like... It's not all clean, choreographed action. Like, that's never what it is in a battle. But anyway, continue. Like, this is this is a movie, and so is Big Red 1. They both have exciting action war sequences. Like, the first time I watched this movie, and I do think this is one of the two great American movies, like, there are more than two great American movies from the 90s, but, like, my top two are this and Safe. Um, and I realized that, for, like, obviously... Pulp Fiction, Goodfellas, whatever. But, like, for me, these are the these are the top two. Put them in some order. And, like... I'm sorry. Is someone forgetting speed? <laughs> Spud. And as we, as we think about the, um... About the movie, like, this one has these great action sequences. And the first time I watched it, there's a lot of it that... Hold on to your hats as I say this about a Malick movie, but which is genuinely thrilling. Like, some thrilling action where I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, where there, where there is an incredible amount of tension. Um, and you get the sense, like, you know, if this guy were not inclined to, like, 
find God in as many ways as he could with the camera, then he might have been, you know, not Spielberg, clearly. Like, Spielberg is a very different kind of director. But, like, you could see him as a highly successful commercial director with this great artistic sense. He's just not into it. Guy's looking for God. Good for him. Um, but this does this does have this the, that long hour. Like, that middle sequence is just pure... Let's send these guys up the hill. Oh my God, they're all dying. Maybe let's not send them all up the hill. What's our next plan? Um, and and that's really, really compelling. And there is a conflict between uh, the Nolte character and the Codius character, a colonel and a captain. The colonel is dying to be advanced. He's like, you're going to send your men up that hill. And the captain says, I love these guys too much. I'm not doing it. And like there, that's like a lightning moment in the middle of this movie where he's like, I'm refusing this order. I have witnesses on my end, get some witnesses on yours. Like I'm telling you no. Um, and it's, it's in the middle of some really exceptional action sequences. It does pass my, my military movie test. Uh, both this and Big Red One do that, which is... I don't know if I've talked about this on the pod. I talk about it in, like, every war movie article I do. But, like, essentially the idea is, is there a moment where someone's life is purposefully sacrificed by a superior officer or is at least put in serious danger in order to ex- to achieve an objective? In other words, the, the point of war, the reason why it's bad, is because it values objectives more than life. And, like, if it does that, then it's not humanist. And... This movie has this has a sequence where Jared Leto's character points at two guys, tells them to go forward. They look at each other and they keep looking at each other. And the camera cuts between the and there's like cuts between the two as they look back at each other. And wordlessly, you know what they're saying is, we're going to die. We're being sacrificed by our officer back there to ensure that he can figure out where the guns are. Because he doesn't know, and he's using the two of us as target practice for those people to tell him where the guns are. And they go forward, and they're both killed. Just like everybody knew they would be. And, like, that's in this movie, too, on top of all of the the supposedly hoity-toity stuff about, like, are we all, are we all one soul? Um, so that's definitely there. And I did want to just sort of reiterate that nature is, like, everywhere in this movie— um, that the the fact is that if we are part of this one soul or if we are, you know, part of a nature that contends with itself, it's it's a cycle. So like one thing that you notice is that even when the men are tearing up the grass or the soil and the John Savage character like does this, he's just like, it's just dirt. And if like, yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's just dirt. Um, but the the grass still waves on these hills in very singular ways that none of these people have any control over. And there are shots where there will be little, like little animals that are just like in the action. And there are people going, but the animals and and the, the sunlight are part of it too. So like there's one that I always think about where these men are going up the hill and they're going vertically, and there's a little blue butterfly that just goes right in front of them, like horizontally, like it makes like a like a cross between them. Or um, there's like a snake at one point, like a snake that's just sort of like dancing in the grass in front of these guys as they're trying to ascend this hill, like, and it's a poisonous snake. 
and you're like, oh my god, am I gonna get, like, you, you can see it on their face, is this venomous snake gonna bite me, or am I gonna get killed by a bullet? And, like, you can tell that there is, like, that connection there, but that the snake is gonna keep coming back, the grass is gonna keep coming back, the light is always gonna shine through the trees, the crocodile will continue to slide into its pond, um, there is, there is this incredible sense of, of, of a cycle, and not just, like, a circle of life thing, but, like, if nature is vying with itself, if there is a fight between parts of nature, and you can you can debate until the cows come home about what the what nature is doing or how natural it is for you know a republic to fight fascism and vice versa, you can get into that. But like the movie is is emphasizing through frequent callbacks to the natural world what's going on and and shows in multiple ways how the war defiles it and you can see that in in a bunch of ways i could go on about this movie for hours but i'm gonna like stop myself here unless there is unless there is anything else that you want to talk about like i could go into like the portrayal of the japanese or something but i don't know that we necessarily have time for all that no i think i'm okay i have an idea of what I might be doing here, but I, a spiel could could twist it. So, are you ready for spiel time? All right. So, the original movie here, sadly, uh, is is future top twenty AFI choice, Saving Private Ryan. As it is right now, it is only seventy first. Um, the film is looking at World War Two from a distance, and that's the theme for this week: World War Two at a distance, and the distance that it takes allows us to see World War II not not necessarily as patriotism, not necessarily even as, um, you know, right versus wrong, democracy, whatever. It's, it's about duty to your unit and following the orders that will complete your mission and, and, you know, can you be faithful to the fellow men around you. Two movies that look at war very differently, uh, look at this specific war very differently, one of them is the big red one, uh, Samuel Fuller's 1980 movie, and I'm talking about his restoration, or not his, I should say other people's restoration of his movie um, from 2004, more than the original, um, the original release. That film is primarily looking at World War II as about who lived and who died, who are the survivors and who are the people who were killed. Um, you know, it's not about duty, it's not about, I mean, doing a good job matters, but, like, it's not about, do I care about the people around me? It's, am I going to see that person at breakfast tomorrow? And that's sort of what the movie boils down to. And it's something which is true for the soldiers. And when it's played that way, it's kind of, it's kind of casual about it, sometimes even funny. And then you see it with civilians, especially children, and it's, it's not funny anymore. Like, there's, there's a very human toll um, to, to what could otherwise be, I think, a very cynical movie. And then you have Terrence Malick's uh, The Thin Red Line from 1998, same year as Saving Private Ryan, lol. Um, and Malick's movie, World War II, is about a cycle of violence in a cycle of nature. Um, where, do we, where do we all fit in when it comes to this? Is it natural to fight wars? Is there something pushing us... Um, to do so from nature itself? Or is there something fundamentally unnatural about us doing this, and does nature have to persevere and continue to spite 
our presence um, doing these these evil, wicked things, that everyone on both sides, and I, I'll get into the Japanese vaguely here, but like you see them, and you see how how damaged they are by the experience, and you see how weak so many of them are, so many like weeks into the into the battle. Um, and you see how much, how much hurt and pain they have as well. Like, both sides suffer, both sides live and die, both sides seem to, on the individual level, overwhelmingly seem to be not in favor of doing this at all. <laughs> and, like, you can see the, the incredible amount of hurt that the violence is creating, and yet you still have to wonder, A, does nature cause it? Does nature force us to have this fight? Um, or if it doesn't force us to have this fight, will it come back and outlast the fight itself? Is there something stronger than that death, which, which war inevitably brings? So those are our choices. Um, two movies. I, I did watch all three of these again today. Um, and of course for two of these, that was just the greatest pleasure and for the other, not so much, but hey, we did get to talk about it. So, choices, choices? You'll never know which one was not the pleasure, friends. Um, my decision here is based on a pushed reading of something you said, which is just another way of saying I'm going somewhere else with what you were framing. Um, I'm going to go with the thin, thin red line here. Um, and I look forward to it being number one on your subtitles movies list. Very likely. <laughs> what? Very likely. I knew it. What were you going to do if I didn't pick it? Honestly, like, without tooting my own horn, I think I made a fairly compelling case for the big red one. You, I mean, it seemed like there were some things there that interested you, so I wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to feel bad about it or anything, but I do think that this is a case of just, like, an absolute... You did make... You, you did make a good case for it. I, I pondered it on its own merits and also as revenge for the tool thing. Um, <laughs> oh, don't worry. That's coming back to get you at some point. Um, no, I'm going with thin, thin Red Line, which apparently I have trouble saying the first time I try and then have to reload. So here we are. Um, uh, of course, I'm interested in the nature aspect of it. Um, and I'm interested in it as a in a movie that seems to have a humanist heart. Um, I mean, I know Malik is trying to find God in everything, and that's part of why <laughs> I love uh, the Tree of Life. Um, but it does seem to be very like right what you're saying at the end there. The soldiers on whatever side are fighting for these socio-political entities above themselves and they're traumatized all the same um like it doesn't matter what uniform you have on being in the trenches is its own like universalizing terror basically um but the nature interspersed in all of that as i mean to me just hearing it it reads as like a bastardization of nature in so many ways and right nature is a fraught concept itself but what is humanity doing to this world in which it finds itself um and so in a movie that potentially has that kind of or at least mildly humanist vision to it um all these interstitials of nature to me is the 
fundamental limitation of that and that, well, we need to consider the space in which we are and the other species that are involved in that. Um, and the, you know, the flora and the fauna alike. Um, so for, like that, and I guess the combination of all those visuals and images and very, really interesting questions about, you know, what is in our nature, like animalistic instincts and all that. But I just think a vision of the world that tends to, war movies are so human centric, but there's more collateral damage happening in these. There, there's more that results from these than just the loss of human life. Um, so considering the place within a larger world, um, that really has me. And I think that's something that I didn't forget about the theme. I'm not just spinning philosophical here. <laughs> I think, uh, what did you call it exactly? World war two from a distance. Um, not that no one understood that around World War II, but I think that's definitely something that we are much more, um, or some of us anyway, are much more concerned about now, or much more responsive to, um, right? Because I'm almost necessarily working into like a post-humanist thing. Not that Malik is like purposefully setting that up, but I think as we look at uh, at a war from a distance, that's a kind of reading that has to happen from a distance, um, and that kind of casts the the effort of war itself into a different life as well as world war ii so going with thin red line for hoity-toity pretentious reasons basically as is my want and my right on this podcast <laughs> so say we all so uh the original afi movie this week saving private ryan um and the theme world war ii from a distance and so Matt went with the thin red line instead of the big red one, came down to something red. Um, Terrence Malick becomes our second second director to, to snare uh, to snare two movies on this list. So we'll we'll see how many if he's got any more in him. We'll see how Malick this this list can get. Well, the shadow game here is: does he end up with a winning or a losing record? And now. Uh, that's an open question again, and we will have to wait a couple weeks until we find. So, if you are, um, if you're looking for, say, part one of this episode about Beck, um, the brief, or not brief, for 15 years, the brother-in-law of uh, Giovanni Ribisi, um, you can check out subtitlespodcast.com where we talked about Odelay, uh and some deconstructionist bents over there i guess it was a very deconstructionist uh recording session for us today i'm, I'm just gonna say between these parts i got to drop derrida vonnegut mitchell posthumanism, and probably some other stuff that i'm not remembering offhand but it's a banger week for me <laughs> happier than a happier than than a crocodile in a pond so the uh the website, when you go to there, when you go to subtitlespodcast.com, you can check out older episodes. Uh, you can check out, like an about page about us, you can find his Spotify, my Letterboxd. You can also find our blogs. And once again, I'm going to um, going to direct people to a very long, um, maybe, maybe slightly overstated even, series of, or um, article about like 25 plus original reviews of these two movies and like what the, the common threads were about, about saving private Ryan and the thin red line at the time. 
and how I think it is indicative of 90s discourse and also if it, if these two movies came out now, Twitter would die. Film Twitter would explode and maybe we should get a re-release going. We will see you around next time. <laughs>